Hey, everybody. Time is running out to register for the StoryBrand Marketing Workshop that's happening July 14th through 16th in Nashville, Tennessee. Stop wasting time and money on marketing that doesn't work. Spend two days with me, JJ Kula, and the rest of our team creating a clear message that will grow your business. Register at storybrand.com, and we'll see you in just a few weeks. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., today's guest believes that this saying, jack of all trades, master of none, is a myth. Really? That in order to be a master of something, he said it's incredibly beneficial for you to become a jack of all trades. In other words, he says specialization is not good. You want to be more of a generalist in order to get good at something. Because that actually helps you be better at lots of things or helps you be better at one thing or... Well, he would say, we get into the interview, like if there is some sort of economic problem, yeah, you might find the answer from a physicist. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, because they're you looking need at to it get, from a different angle. You're looking and, at it yeah. from a different perspective. StoryBrand's a great example. I think, you know, I'm going to toot our own horn, we have the greatest marketing exercise and framework, period, in history. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it came from 2,000-year-old literary theory. Yeah. It did not come from anybody who was trying Didn't to do marketing. marketing. It came from yeah. Aristotle. It came yeah. from Aristotle's book, Poetics. That's the seed, if you will, of the story yes. brand framework, who had no intention of creating a marketing tool. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he was not trying to sell shampoo. <laughs> and so it's that ability to sort of be a generalist. And so there's a couple themes to today's interviews. Yeah. One is the billion-dollar idea that you're looking for may not be down the deep path that you're going. Yes. It may yeah. be in some other thing that you've got to more or less borrow from or learn from. And so generalists actually have... Now, I would say... Not always true. You know, if I have somebody doing brain surgery on me, I don't want them to say, I don't know a lot about brain surgery. I know a lot about weed eaters. Yeah. And I'm telling you, there's some common denominators yeah. here. I think and we're I off to a bad start. And I can use this weed eater. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. Here's your problem. You're out of string. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think it's within reason. Yeah, yeah. He's fascinating. Actually, here's how I discovered this guy. I was on a flight from somewhere to somewhere. And you had to choose movies to watch. And there was a new documentary, I'm a documentary junkie called In Search of Greatness. Yes. And I thought I'll watch it for five minutes. It was just one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Really? about. Yeah. Especially if you're in Enneagram 3 and you're, uh-huh. you want to succeed, <laughs> this is just going to be crack. It's Wayne Gretzky. It's Michael Jordan. And they're all talking about how they got it done. Mm-hmm. And David Epstein today's guest, is featured in the documentary. He's one of the leading experts on how to do this stuff. And Gretzky was saying, and they interviewed Gretzky's dad, and Gretzky's dad said, I never made him play hockey. You know, because all the other hockey players, their dads made him play hockey. It went deep. Yeah. He said, no, I mean, if he didn't enjoy it, I didn't make him do it. So he actually played baseball, played football, he played hockey, and hockey was not his favorite sport. And David Epstein would argue it's because he was a generalist that he became one of the world's great hockey players. And even something that, it's in the documentary, something that Wayne Gretzky did on the ice that nobody else had done, he learned from baseball. 
And so that's the idea that he's yeah. getting into. So he's not saying even you stay a generalist. He's saying no. like that being a generalist actually helps you be specific. Get great at Get one great. thing. That's interesting. And it's interesting because this actually affects our hiring. We're hiring somebody for a position downstairs, and I haven't talked to them yet, but Betsy, my wife, interviewed them yesterday, I think. And this person has no experience in what that department is all about. Uh-huh. But that's not what we were asking. We were asking, how do you solve problems? Yeah. How do you de-escalate tension? Yeah. How do you... And does she have a span of experience in multiple different fields? Yeah. Because she's going to have to work with all sorts of businesses yeah, in multiple yeah. different fields. Yep. That's what we were looking for, and we found it. Yeah. And you know, based on David Epstein's ideas, I think we're hopeful that we it works. We will let you know. <laughs> we will let you know. But you're somebody who always just chases their creativity. I would not be at StoryBrand had I not been what would be considered a generalist. Right. right. My background is in public relations. It's in teaching. It's in screenwriting. It's in acting. It's being on the stage. Like it's all. And the now we things. need you on a stage. Teaching yeah. <laughs> a framework based in screenwriting, literary uh-huh. theory, and that so on helps and so people on. do public relations and marketing, which right. is what I've done. If you would have labeled me, like I talked to somebody about this the other day, depending on when you knew me in my life, you know me as somebody different from a professional perspective. Mm-hmm. So I have so many students who just see me as professor. You know, like he's a professor. What is he doing, you know, working in Hollywood? (laughs) You know, those kind of things. Or the people in Hollywood would have no idea that I have a PhD. You know, that it's like when I'm in those spaces, I am going very deep in those spaces, but I do consider myself a generalist. I can step into a number of different areas, but each of those areas, I could not have crafted the path to get to StoryBrand, but yeah. it was the perfect path for me to be a part of this organization. And that's why when I found it, when I came to the workshop, I was like, I've been trying to do this for 20 years <laughs> in 10 different areas, well, and it this, brings it all, all together. All of this makes sense, <laughs> right? Well, in his book, Range, that's what David Epstein talks about. He talks about you know farmers who figured out something that economists needed to know. And then he talks about crowdsourcing for answers and answers coming from the most unpredictable places. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fascinating. I'm crazy about our conversation. I, yeah. I actually hope, I've got a meeting with him, I think, in another month, that we can do some sort of course for our listeners yeah. that he can take us through some exercises and oh, be in, in being creative. Anyway, here's my conversation with David Epstein. By the way, his book is called Range. That documentary is called In Search of Greatness. Watch it tonight on Netflix. It's just awesome. Here's my conversation with David Epstein. David Epstein, I'm a fan of what you've done, and I'm just honored to have you. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for that's so kind to say. You're basically a, you get paid to be extremely curious about a lot of things. You know, in my past (laughs) life, I was a geology grad student, and my work was getting very narrow, and so I I was living in a tent in the Arctic, okay? (laughs) And it came to a point where I asked myself, am I the type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning one thing new to the world, or much shorter spans of time? In a tent in the Arctic. Right, right. Or much shorter spans of time learning things like new to me, and connecting them and roaming widely in my curiosities. And it was very clear to me that I was the latter. You did a lot of work in sports writing on concussions. We talked before. I loved your contribution to the Frontline series on concussions in football. And you did some very, very serious reporting on drug cartels and the relationship between drug cartels and the DEA. And now you've written a book called Range that basically talks about how we should approach problems. There's more to it than that. But the problem with being a specialist in one area 
is you're probably not a very good problem solver in real life. And so you get into that. Am I on to something with this or not? No, I think so. And it's not to say that a specialist is not a good problem solver, but I think they are a constrained problem solver. So I talk about in the book about this sort of when all you have is a hammer problem, everything looks like a nail yeah. in many, many different yeah. industries and how as we're the library of human knowledge is exploding, our trenches, one of my favorite characters in the book describes scientific research now is what he calls a system of parallel trenches where everyone is in a trench down deep in a trench looking down and not standing up and looking over at what's going on in the next trench, even though that's where their answer might be. Right. And I think his point is that we have this explosion of different disciplines in everything we do and people specialize more and more. Right. And that's not because the world is broken up into disciplines. It's because it's easier for us to classify it that way. The problem is it means that as we get narrower and narrower, the solution to our problems are more often outside of our direct view. And so how do you deal with that? Are we constrained by our own blind spots? We're constrained by what we don't know, or are we constrained more by the fact that we don't really know what we don't know? Is the problem that we're not aware that we're in trenches, or is the problem that we're actually in the trenches, or both? Both. And I think to give like a really simple example of that kind of siloing that I, that I give in the introduction to range, in the aftermath of the Great Recession, the government, in an attempt to help homeowners stay in their homes, basically started a program for people who met certain criteria. Like, let's say they still had a job. And so they could make monthly payments, but they couldn't make their full monthly mortgage payment. So the government said to the banks, don't foreclose on them. Let them make a partial payment, and then we'll give you part of the rest of the remaining payments. So you won't get everything, but you'll get something, and you won't move this person out of their house. Okay? Mm, okay. So this was a good program for banks. So banks, big banks start saying, all right, we're going to lower the monthly mortgage payment for some of these people who meet a certain criteria like they still are employed. And they did that. And so those homeowners start paying less every month on their mortgage. And then arms of the same banks that are in charge that specialize in foreclosure see that they're making lower payments and foreclose, right? Huh. So these are arms of the same banks that had so little idea of what the other was doing that it turned out into the, like, the exact perverse effect of what they really wanted. And, and so I think the, the realization was that there were these silos that nobody even realized the real danger of them inside of banks. And that's sort of an analogy I use in the introduction because – it's not dissimilar from a lot of other areas, basically. We can all maximize, if we're so specialized, we can optimize for what's right in front of us. And if we all do that collectively, we can still have disastrous impacts if we're too narrow and too specialized. Well, you've got a bunch of sort of paradigm shifts in the book that help us expand our range. And one of them is when less of the same is more. And you talk about there being so many paths to success and expertise, but sampling has proven time and again across disciplines to be a successful route. Can you explain how sampling works? The first way I talk about this in the book is in sports, what I call the Roger versus Tiger problem. Okay. Okay. So that's why that's the title of the introduction, Roger versus Tiger. So Tiger Woods, we kind of know his development story pretty well. It's at the core of a huge number of best-selling books. He could walk when he was six months old. He started golfing when he was a year. He was winning like an under 10 competition when he was two. You know, his father was prepping him for future media when he was three. He was hustling people when he was four and so on and so on. So he was famous as a kid. You know, he's on television golf yeah. when he was two years old. Okay. And so that's been used to say, this is the model of success and then extrapolated to all the other domains. Okay. And the Roger Federer's story, we don't know as well. And people don't hear it. He played a whole bunch of different sports. 
as a mm-hmm. kid. His mother forced him to continue playing badminton, basketball, and soccer long after his peers. When coaches tried to move him up to play with older players, he declined because he just wanted to talk with his friends about WWE after practice, right? And he just kept doing this wide variety of things. And my question was, which one of these and this question came up because I was I was putting a debate with Malcolm Gladwell about the best way for athletes to develop, and he'd written about Tiger Woods. And my question was, which one of these is the norm? Right. This early specialization or this early sampling where you gain a breadth of skill, general skills, you learn more about your interests and your abilities. And it turns out that is by far the norm, that in every sport you look at pretty much, maybe not golf, but golf, it turns out, is actually a horrible model of almost everything else that humans want to learn. Okay, so the fact that we've been extrapolating from the Tiger Woods story to much more cognitively complex domains, golf is the epitome of what's called a kind learning environment where it's non-dynamic. There are no other people you have to be concerned about. Feedback you get on every repetition. All information is available and the feedback is always immediate and fully accurate. That's the epitome of a kind learning environment. Yeah. And though it's not good to extrapolate those to the other kinds of work we usually do, which are much more so-called wicked learning environments. It's basically an industrial task. You try to repeat the same thing over and over with as little deviation as possible. In the wider world of work, tasks that are that kind are either automated now or are about to be. And so it's actually a pretty poor model. And in most other areas, what you want is this breadth early. In other words, if you approach your career trying to specialize and get good at something the way you can succeed in golf, it's not going to work. And even if it does, you're going to be replaced by a robot because you're in such a specialized field that a robot could do the work. Right. And we all specialize to some degree or another at some point, right? Roger yeah. specialized eventually. In tennis, it's a question yeah. of how he got there. In sports, what we see systematically is that the athletes who go on to become elite play more sports earlier and specialize later systematically than their peers. Golf may be an exception. We're not really sure. There's not enough science on it, but I can believe that golf is an exception because it's such a different activity. Wayne Gretzky was that way, right? Like yep. he picked it up late. He picked up hockey late, football, baseball, whatever, all these other things. And one of the things that his father said was, I'm summarizing here, but I didn't try to teach him to be a great hockey player. I really just wanted him to love sport and do what he loved. And that's a different model than Tiger's dad too. I, what's interesting to me is the assumption here is we see somebody succeed and we try to reverse engineer how they succeed and then we say this is how you succeed it's all thinking in binary and the world is not binary that's right and a lot of times when we're reverse engineering that we're not really doing it in a very scientific way right there are a million ways to get to elite performance as many ways as there are people i think the question we should be looking at is what's the norm What's typical? What's the safest path or what's the most high percentage path of us succeeding? Yeah. And so I use the Roger versus Tiger problem as just a jumping off point to say, how does this pattern look in other domains? So originally, you know, I titled the book proposal Roger versus Tiger and said, I'm just going to go through domains and say when it's better to be a Tiger and when it's better to be a Roger. That's interesting. Yeah. But I want to move out of sports and look at more complex domains. And what I found was the more complex the domain, the more Rogery it looks. So like in something like comic books. And I tried to pick studies that didn't suffer from survivor bias that I see in a lot of studies in the business world where the study is set up in a way that by the end, you're only dealing with success cases. So you really don't know if that was luck or it's cherry picked. So I tried to find studies that followed success and failure that could track that. So it didn't suffer from that kind of survivor bias. So one I loved was in the comic book industry where these researchers could track the value of individual comic books for decades as they went up or down. 
and the careers of creators, whether those were teams or individuals. And they predicted some pretty intuitive stuff. They hypothesized that the resources of a publisher would make a creator both better on average and more likely to create a blockbuster, that years of experience would do the same, that number of repetitions would do the same. Hmm. And what they found was none of those were true, okay? <laughs> repetitions had a negative effect because it's not an industrial task. They expected that because in industrial tasks, if you just repeat, repeat, repeat. You get better and better. Right, but turns out that comic book creation isn't like that. Years of experience in the industry. I, I got to pause you there because I'm a writer, right? I do creative writing. Why is it that the more you repeat telling a story doesn't necessarily make you a better storyteller. Is that what you discovered? I think you have to do those things. It's not to say that practice isn't important, yeah. right? But there's a classic finding that I mentioned in the book from a wide range of different domains that goes like this. Breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. What you want is to be able to transfer your knowledge and skills to new situations. That's mm. what the work world is like. It's not like a golf course or you can play it over and over. It's how do you take your knowledge and continually apply it to new situations? And the single most important thing that allows you to do that is how broad your training was. So let me just give you an example. Okay. So when the Navy simulated training in response to different types of threats, right, where somebody has to make a very important judgment under pressure, they wanted to see, you know, what's the best way to train. So they trained some people on the same threats like over and over and over and over again. And until they get really good when they're, you know, on that day at responding to a certain threat. And then they train them on the next type of threat over and over and over and over again. And then a separate group they take and they train them and they never see the same thing twice. It's like always a different exposure and they get really frustrated. And those they never get a chance to get good at the one thing. Exactly. And they feel like they aren't learning. So when those people evaluate their own learning, they say, I was totally confused. I didn't learn anything. I didn't improve. I didn't get any better. And then when they bring those people back much later, and put them both in totally new situations that neither of them have seen, the group that had the mixed up training with all these broad scenarios didn't repeat the same thing, destroys the group that was practicing <laughs> the same things over and over and getting better at them. In fact, as more time passes, they start beating them even at those specific things. Yeah, it makes sense because the group that trained over and over on the same context has only had one experience with a new thing, and it was the first time they did the, whatever the original context was. And the other group had plenty of experience trying to figure out what's going on here, that makes a lot of sense. And what that forces you to do, what the trick is, is that forces you to create these generalizable models and skills that you can then apply to new situations going forward. So the situations they were tested on, none of them had ever seen. So it was just a question of who would have an advantage for seeing totally new things. And that breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer turns out to show up all over the place, right? So if you're teaching kids math, instead of giving them the same problem over and over to practice like we do, you want to mix them all up. So instead of practicing procedures, they're learning how to match certain strategies to different problems and create these generalizable models for thinking. And, and that's what you want. To go back to that comic book study, none of those things, years of experience, repetitions, years of experience had no impact on average value or the likelihood of producing a blockbuster. Publisher resources had a slight negative impact, strangely. Hmm. The big impact came from the number of different genres that the creator had ever worked in. The more different genres they had worked in, the better they were on average, and the more likely they were to produce a blockbuster. And individual breadth was so important, you couldn't, let's say you had an individual who had only worked in one genre, whereas you had a team of three, and each person had worked in one different genre. Then you wanted the team. You wanted the three by platoon versus the one. How much of this is the ability to walk in with fresh thinking? 
I think that's a huge part of it. At four genres, an individual becomes better than a team on average and more likely to create a blockbuster. So after four genres, you need some of this breadth contained in an individual. So the name of this paper was called Superman or the Fantastic Four. And their conclusion was you want a Superman who's done all these different genres. And if you can't get them, then you put together a diverse team. But as the genre experience went up, individuals got pulled away from teams. So you couldn't recreate the creativity of a broad individual by just putting together a diverse team. So we really needed individuals. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with David Epstein in just a moment. If you haven't gone to businessmadesimple.com yet, you should. You can sign up for a daily video. That's every weekday. I send you a bit of wisdom, business wisdom, things that we have learned that will either make you money, save you money, or advance your career in some way. Thursday, I'm going to sit down and film another week's worth of videos. It's my favorite thing to do is to sit down and film these because I know with everyone, I'm keeping you from a problem that I struggled with. So we struggled with execution for a long time. Now we've got a five-step plan on execution. That is getting everybody on your entire team aligned, knowing what everybody's objectives are, handing out goals and keeping people accountable to reach those goals. There's just a five-step way to do that. I'm filming that video on Thursday. It will come free to you if you sign up, and it's just going to save you a lot of headaches. If nobody is coaching you, then you are pouring out from yourself. Nobody's pouring into you, and you're going to end up feeling empty and drained. Not only that, think about a year from now. If you got a coaching video every weekday morning, think of it like a three- to five-minute daily business devotion If you got that every morning a year from now, how many less mistakes would you make? How much more money would you make? How many more deals would you close? How many more deals would you negotiate with success? How much less tension would there be in your office? How many new hires would you ask the right questions to? All of that stuff is taught in these videos. Just go to businessmadesimple.com. It's completely free. There's no charge. Businessmadesimple.com. It's interesting because I've been able to step into some political campaigns just to give some messaging advice. And every time I do, I'm usually on the phone. I'm never the lead campaign manager just because I'm running a company. But I'm on the phone with somebody who ran a presidential campaign or somebody who did this, somebody who did that. And they're specialists. And I always think to myself, you know who needs to chime in on this political campaign is Alan Heimberg who has never been involved in a political campaign. He just wrote Grey's Anatomy and The O.C. and the Wonder Woman movie and comic books. You know, and then if I talk to Alan, Alan's like, oh, you want to structure it this way. Even though he has no idea about political campaigns, I think he clearly has some of the best ideas in the room because he's coming at it from this other perspective of how do we compose something that draws in an audience and captivates their attention which is exactly what you're trying to do with a political campaign. Meanwhile, they're looking at surveys and saying, how can we make our candidate look like the person these people say they want to vote for? I guess what I'm saying is, are we looking in the wrong places for solutions to the problems that we're dealing with? That's a great question. And two things I address in range and that two great points that I'd like to address here. And one is that question of, are we looking in the wrong place? There was a guy who was the VP of research and development at Eli Lilly who wondered that same thing. What he had noticed, he was an organic chemist, so he highly specialized, as he told me, he said like something like, for goodness sake, if it doesn't have a carbon in it, I'm not even qualified to work on it, (laughs) you know? And what he found was that as he and his colleagues became more specialized, they turned to the same solutions over and over. 
And every once in a while, he would notice that someone with some random bit of experience that they never would have learned in the course of their normal work or education would solve some problem that had stumped them. Hmm. So he went around Eli Lilly and said, give me the problems that have stumped you, right? The most well-resourced chemists and scientists in the world, give me the problems. I'm going to post them online. And they were like, that's crazy. You know, you can't, nobody's going to solve it if we didn't. Well, let's see. He said, let's see. And at first they, you know, they had these concerns about proprietary stuff, but he was like, nobody will even know what else we're doing anyway. So it doesn't matter. So he puts those online. Turns out that about a third of them get solved. Wow. These problems that had completely stumped Eli Lilly. Which is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So he spins this off and it works so well. He spins it off into its own company called Innocentive that helps other companies or organizations post problems for outside solvers. So they solved a problem of predicting solar storms that stuck NASA for 30 years and outside solver solved it in six months. Wow. And what they found was that if you really wanted a problem to be solved, you try to frame the questions in a way that it won't attract just chemists, but it'll attract dentists and mechanics and engineers and computer programmers. And the more diverse people it appeals to, the more likely it gets solved. So if the question was, are we often looking in the wrong place? I think Innocentive, which itself spawned a whole bunch of other imitators, says we are very often looking in the wrong place. And when a Harvard researcher analyzed the solvers of these problems that had stumped industries, he found that the farther away the people who sort of entered the competition were from what he called the home field of the problem itself, the more likely it was to get solved. So the answer is yes, we are very often looking in the wrong place. So let's play this problem really quick, okay? okay? So there's a chapter in range called Thinking Outside Experience, which is about how do you approach problem solving when the problems are totally novel, so you couldn't have really had experience. There's a famous problem that I'm just gonna read to you real quick, and then you can think about it for like five seconds, okay? Okay. Suppose you're a doctor faced with a patient who has a malignant stomach tumor. It's impossible to operate on this patient, but unless the tumor is destroyed, the patient will die. There's a kind of ray that can be used to destroy the tumor. If the rays reach the tumor all at once at a sufficiently high intensity, the tumor will be destroyed. Unfortunately, at this intensity, the healthy tissue that the rays pass through on the way to the tumor will also be destroyed. At lower intensities, the rays are harmless to healthy tissue, but they will not affect the tumor either. What type of procedure might be used to destroy the tumor with the rays and at the same time avoid destroying healthy tissue? Okay, so you have this problem where you have equipment that can destroy the tumor in sufficient intensity, but that also destroys the patient's healthy tissue. Right. So what do you do? And this is a famous problem from research, and almost nobody solves it when asked that question. Okay, but then it's like less than 10% of people solve it, and they would have much more time than you have. So yeah, whatever they can. But then when people are told this other story, so listen to this other story, okay? Okay. There's once a general who needed to capture a fortress in the middle of a country from a brutal dictator. If the general could get all of his troops to the fortress at the same time, they would have no problem taking it. Plenty of roads that the troops could travel radiated out from the fort like wheel spokes, but they were strewn with mines, so only small groups of soldiers could safely traverse any one road. The general came up with a plan. He divided the army into small groups, and each group traveled a different road leading to the fortress. They synchronized their watches and made sure to converge on the fortress at the same time via their separate roads. The plan worked. The general captured the fortress and overthrew the dictator. Okay? After hearing that story, about a third of people solved the original problem. (laughs) As did I (laughs) just now. (laughs) And then finally— I'm going to give you one last one. But that's not fair because that is actually the solution to the original problem. That's not – you gave the solution in the second story but not in the 
first story. So, of course, we all solved the first problem, right? Does that make Only sense? Only about 30% of people solve it after hearing that. Okay, so when they gave this second story, they didn't actually give the solution. That's the solution that the group came That's up right. with. Got it. Okay, got it. But it doesn't actually matter. You can give the solution. So a third story totally gives it. says, okay, years ago, a small-town fire chief arrived at a woodshed fire, concerned it would spread to a nearby house so it wasn't extinguished quickly. There was no hydrant nearby, but the shed was next to a lake, so there was plenty of water. Dozens of neighbors were already taking turns with buckets throwing water on the shed, but they weren't making any progress. The neighbors were surprised when the fire chief yelled at them to stop and to all go fill their buckets in the lake. When they returned, the chief arranged them in a circle around the shed and on the count of three had them all throw their water at once. The fire was immediately dampened and soon thereafter extinguished. So the key is with the rays, right, you have to keep them at low intensity but organize them in a circle around the tumor and have them converge at the same point. 80% of people solve it when they've gotten those, that third story, when they've gotten three different stories. And the thing is, this is just symbolic of what's found in research on what's called analogical thinking, which are the more different types of conceptually similar problems that someone can generate in their head, the more likely they are to come up with a solution to a novel problem. And so when you see this in this chapter, write about it particularly in science and technology, the labs and groups that make these big breakthroughs are the ones that have people who have worked on lots of different technologies. So this is just like with the comic book creators, the big predictor of who makes a technological patent that will be a huge breakthrough is the number of different technology classes that they've worked in over their career. Hmm. And they use these different classes like analogy to say, I'm stuck on this problem in this one area. What happened in these other areas I worked on when we faced something similar? And that turns out to be like a linchpin between, you know, a difference between the people who solve really difficult novel problems and those who don't. You talk about in the book, flirting with your possible selves. You use that phrase, flirting with your possible selves. We've talked so far in this conversation about the fact that you want to sort of outsource to a wide range of human beings problems in order to get solutions. When you talk about flirting with your possible selves, are you saying that within us, we also have to understand there is a range of problem solvers, if you will, and we need to tap into that? How can a person sitting alone in a room without access to a bunch of other information find within themselves a different paradigm within which they can operate to solve problems? So flirting with impossible selves, that chapter... And I should say the subtitle of range is why generalists triumph in a specialized world. And that chapter is sort of about people who a different type of problem solving. And people become generalists not because they set out to become a generalist, but because they take this zigzagging path in their career while they're looking for the place where they can right. be most effective, maximizing their so-called match quality, which is the term economists use for the fit between who you are and the skills you have and, and what you do for work. And essentially what flirting with your possible selves means is that we actually have no idea where we best fit until we've tried a whole bunch of stuff, just like the athletes, we have to have a sampling period. And then you sort of zigzag back and forth between things until you find your best fit and maximize your match quality, which has a huge impact on your growth rate and overall productiveness. And those people sort of end up as generalists just because they've been zigzagging in search of match quality. So that part's sort of less about individual problem solving, except to the extent that it's about how do you solve the problem of finding the place where you'll have the highest growth rate and the way to do that is experimentation, a certain type of experimentation, and you end up with this very broad toolbox. So I don't think there's a, a secret for a person sitting alone other than they have to get far away from the problem and try to consider other problems with deep structural similarities. So just like the comic books, just like the tech patents in that chapter, thinking outside experience, the, probably the world's expert in analogical problem solving is a 
you know, using other domains to solve problems is a researcher at Northwestern University. And what did she find when she gave these different types of problems to students to see, you know, who could draw from different domains to solve a problem they hadn't seen? She found that the students who were in this thing called the integrated science program where they have no major and they just minor in a whole bunch of different things were the best able to do that because they had these wide domains from which they could draw analogies to bring to new problems. But when I interviewed people in Northwestern, they said, oh, we don't like that program because those kids get behind. They Mm. don't have a major, Mm. right? So they're saying their own world famous researcher has shown these kids are the best problem solvers because they have this broad toolbox, but everyone at the university is saying, well, we don't like that because they get behind. So I really think we have to try to think about different domains when we're stuck in order to recognize deep structural similarities in problems from other areas. But there's no magic trick for doing that. Like you have to expose yourself to other areas or bring other people onto your team who are from other areas. At StoryBrand, we help people clarify their message. And we have hundreds of certified guides that are basically marketing agents who can help you clarify your message and and create good marketing. And what I've found is that while marketing experience is really important, the best marketing agents are actually introverts who give a lot of time to thinking about how to communicate succinctly outside of marketing and outside of writing. They're just people who are a few words. And so because they're a few words, those words need to be succinct and need to communicate a lot. The people who I've found are not very good at writing or marketing or are extroverts who have enormous amounts of energy, love being with people, really can't stand being alone, and can use 50,000 words a day when the average person can use 5,000 words a day. Those people are terrible at marketing (laughs) because marketing is all about saying it in a pithy statement that everybody understands and volume is not your friend. In other words, it's the thousands of hours of practice being quiet and saying one thing that lands that makes you a good marketer. And I don't even care if you've ever done marketing before. If you can do that, it crosses over into marketing in ways that people who've studied marketing for years simply can't do. It's actually fascinating because people say, Don, why are you so good at marketing? It's because one, I'm an introvert and I've spent I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of hours staring at a blank cursor on a page writing Christian memoirs. That's why I'm a good marketer, because you have to figure out how to say it so succinctly to keep somebody turning the page. And I guess that goes into the whole idea of we're looking in the wrong places for some of these solutions. Is that kind of what you're getting at? For sure. I mean, one of the main themes of the book is that some experience that nobody would have told you to have in order to be a great marketer is your most important tool. And that is absolutely the theme of the book. And I hope that those things tend to happen by accident, right? My geology grad school was the most important thing for me to get ahead in Sports Illustrated and become a senior writer there. And so I hope what the book says is, here's a way to maybe make that a little less of an accident by here are some models that you can maybe be more proactive about this instead of it just having to be accidental like you and I, because no one would ever give you and I the advice to do what we did to make our toolbox what it is. Well, I think if there's anything we can take from this, and there's plenty, but one of the things is that on our staff, on the teams that we run, there may be a woman out in the warehouse who has a solution on a finance question. You just don't know. I know that whenever I'm trying to come up with something funny, the first place I go on my team is into our chief design and technology guy, Kyle, who has nothing to do with creative writing on this entire... But Kyle can come up with something funny in a heartbeat. And then I come back 
and I've put it into our content, you know? And I'm wondering if part of what the solution is to our problem of problem solving is we need to think outside the box in terms of this person is good at this, this person is good at this, this person is good at this, and figure out where's this secret hidden superpower that some of our team members have that we haven't discovered yet because we are assuming and we've labeled them as experts in one area. Totally. One of the characters I love in range who was named by R&D Magazine as the innovator of the year in 2013, he basically calls what you're saying, using his words, knowing the adjacent stuff. It's like you have oh, your yeah. lane and you know your lane, but really what's been most important in his career is knowing a little bit about all the things adjacent to him and knowing what the other people on his team do and sort of knowing, you know, having some idea of their other because he knows their job descriptions, yeah. right? But actually taking time to know their actual skills and hidden pockets of knowledge and background experiences and things like that. And so he sort of conceived of what he did as almost putting together a picture using all these people around him. How can we set up our offices to cultivate this sort of free play and promote creative work, flexible knowledge, that sort of thing, and push the boundaries? I mean, how do we structure our teams in such a way where we're getting this cross-pollination of creative ideas. I think what you need to have is we're very focused on having strong formal procedures and formal culture. I think you need to also cultivate a strong informal culture, hmm. right? Because part of this is about things that you can't just telegraph. But for example, Bill Gore, you know, the engineer who went on to start the company that invented Gore-Tex, right. he founded his company based on his observation that other companies did their best creative work during crisis because the disciplinary boundaries went out the window and everybody started scrambling and, <laughs> and learning what each other does. Yeah. He made a staple at his company, what he called dabble time. He said real work gets done in the carpool where the people who aren't going to see each other at work or actually start talking and say, oh, you know what? I might have a thought about your problem. And so he made dabble time a staple where people had this informal time to learn what each other do and talk and share their problems. And so I think, you know, it's a problem that everyone nowadays feels like they have to take their lunch back to their desk. I totally understand that because you want to be more efficient and it seems like you're wasting time if you're not. But we need to set up our workplaces in a way where you can stand up and look at that other trench and so that we build a strong informal culture and so that when you're facing a new problem, suddenly you have all these new people and tools to potentially draw on because you're aware of that so-called adjacent stuff. So I think we need to try to set up some areas of free flow and dabble time and informal culture so that it's like what Bill Gore observed about a company during crisis where the disciplinary boundaries go out the window because we don't have separate disciplines because that's how the world is. We have it because it makes us easy to classify our work, right? And then we have the task of putting the world back together in an interdisciplinary way. I think everyone speaks to the importance of interdisciplinary work, but then we do very little to systematically, you know, support that in our workplace. Fantastic. We've got a lot to execute here. The book is called Range. David Epstein, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk stories with you. JJ, it's interesting because we do marketing strategy sessions occasionally. Yeah. And so I've met with everybody from oh, NetDirect Auto in Fort Worth. They're the number one seller of jacked up trucks, I yep. think, in the country, <laughs> yep. which was so fun. <laughs> and then basically venture capital, private equity folks in New York City, uh -huh. finance people in Omaha. We've met with Cauliflower Foods who makes pizza, pizza crust. crust. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting how many problems we're actually able to solve for people. Yes. I'm meeting with a solar equity firm out in California. And politicians. 
how many problems we can solve from people that somebody over in the jacked up truck yeah. business has already solved and this is cauliflower pizza crust and yeah. this is it's really fascinating <laughs> well, and it's kind of funny so at this point i've worked with I mean, you name it, I've worked with it, right? Yeah, yeah. Every across the board. But in the beginning, when I first started, like a tech company would call and say, how many tech companies have you worked with? And <laughs> what I wanted to say is, you don't want me to have worked with tech companies. You actually want me to come in, right. not really being super tight on your specific business, because now I can bring an outside perspective that is going to change the way you do things. Yeah. And so it's hard to explain that to people when they're trying to hire me. It's like, no, 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 you actually don't want that experience. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the truth is, they don't, but I now have yeah, it. You have so I can it, walk in with any company and go, yeah, I've worked with a company bigger than yours and yeah. be able to say that. But what I want to say is, actually, if you're new, I'm going to do better for you than maybe if I've really been entrenched in this for a long time yeah, with a specific industry because I can bring an outside perspective. Yeah, and the reality is, and this is just metaphorical, of course, it falls apart. You know, I think David Epstein would say the answer is probably not right in front of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you need to look around. You need to look a little bit further. I think it was very inspiring and just fascinating. What a fascinating guy. Yeah. Again, the book is called Range. His name is David Epstein. He's featured in a documentary called The Search for Greatness, and it's fantastic. So, David Epstein, thanks for coming on. We love what you're doing. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>